Welcome. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I am the host of the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. Each episode, I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing Stephanie Dre about the women of Chateau Lafayette. Stephanie is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author of historical women's fiction. Her award-winning work has been translated into eight languages. She lives in Maryland with her husband, cats, and history books. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Stephanie. How are you today? I am great. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you. I loved The Women of Chateau Lafayette, and I can't wait to talk about it. Me too. Let's get started. Let's. Well, I usually have people start out by just telling me a little bit about the book. So for people that haven't read it, it would give them just a quick summary. Well, this is a novel based on an extraordinary true story of a castle in France and the women who were bound by its legacy in three of history's darkest hours. And that legacy is that of the Marquis de Lafayette and his amazing wife, our French founding mother, Adrienne Lafayette. I feel like so many people are now familiar with Lafayette because of Hamilton. So that, you know, after they sat through Hamilton, they're like, okay, I know who he is. But it was wonderful to tell her story because I didn't know anything about her. Yeah, I think because of Hamilton and American Musical, Lafayette's really enjoying a resurgence of popularity as America's favorite fighting Frenchman. And many people know that he came to the United States at the age of 19 to fight in the revolution. But less is known about Adrian, who was back in France defending his reputation, helping to smooth the diplomatic waters for the French-American alliance, and ultimately pledging her own personal interests and finances to the cause. Well, how did you even begin to write about them? Like, how did you become interested in her? What was that process like for you? Well, I had written America's First Daughter and My Dear Hamilton with my fabulous co-author, Laura Kamoy. And in those stories, Lafayette kept popping up as a real scene stealer. He is probably the most lovable of our founding fathers. He's very um, amusing and fun and very interested in women's lives, almost uniquely amongst the founding fathers. And perhaps because he was so young when he fought, He was very interested in the widows and daughters of his fallen comrades when he returned to the United States in 1824 for his farewell tour. And I really wanted to know what kind of women were in Lafayette's life that made him this way. And that is how I discovered Adrienne, who is probably the most courageous heroine I've ever written. She risked her life numerous times to save other people and ultimately joined her husband in prison to help save his life. Well, you talk in your author's note about what almost like a perfect person she seemed to be, and that you were curious to kind of delve into her life to see if she was as perfect as she appears when you first hear about her. And it sounds like you found out that she pretty much was. She pretty much was, which is both lovely as an author, because she's what you see is what you get, but also a little bit nerve wracking because you like to have flaws here and there. And I would say her flaw might be that she really idolized her husband. By the time she was mature in their marriage, she had a good appreciation of his faults and she loved him for who he was anyway. And their love story 
really touched my heart. Well, I thought you portrayed all of that very well. My friend Barrett Lone has recently launched this fabulous business called Let's Talk Books, where she does buddy reads before the books come out. And then we get together and talk, you know, on Instagram in a chat and everybody posts the week of pub week. So I participated in the one for your book. And the group wanted to know how long you spent on the research and the writing for this one. So can you tell me a little bit about that? It must have been an immense project. This is the largest project I've ever tackled. It was seven years in the making. Wow. (laughs) I should clarify that I wasn't working only on this the whole time. I'm often researching one book and writing another book and promoting a third book. The research involved here was not just in the 18th century, which I had a pretty good handle on. I also had to learn new time periods. I had never written in World War I or World War II before, and I wanted to make sure I didn't make any egregious errors. And of course, my second heroine in this novel, Beatrice Chandler, who is the starlet-turned-philanthropist who ended up purchasing Lafayette's birthplace as a refuge for displaced children during World War I, and whose work continued on into World War II. This extraordinary woman, researching her life really threw me for a loop and caused me to rewrite the whole book at least twice. Well, I think that's so fascinating, and you touch on that also in your author's note. And by the way, thank you for such a fabulous lengthy author's notes, because I love that, because then I can go back and see, okay, what really happened, what might have been changed a little bit. You know, you can put in a little more detail that you sometimes can't incorporate to the story. I love when authors do that, so thank you for that. But also, you talk in your author's note about how she totally hid her history. Yes. When I started the story, I thought I was going to be writing a tale of a social maven who was married to a millionaire, who had a troubled marriage, and who sort of found her way back to her husband through her work during World War I. That was the story that I first wrote. Then I was exploring Beatrice's papers at the New York Historical Society when I came upon a packet of letters, and they were love letters. They were also written in code so that the censors couldn't couldn't tell what was happening in them. I happened to have Beatrice's private correspondence because I had been corresponding with her grandson, William Astor Chandler III. And so when I put these two sets of letters together, I was able to decode them and realize that I had discovered a century-old secret love affair with a French officer. So now I had a really different slant on who this woman was and what her World War I story was. But even after I had written that story, I got a call from her grandson who told me that based on some research I had sent him from the New York Historical Society, he had realized that his grandmother wasn't even who she said she was. And I don't want to spoil it, but I will just say that she was a more extraordinary heroine than anyone knew. And so I had to rewrite the story a third time, but I was glad to do it. Was he surprised by the affair that he didn't know about or that the family didn't know about? I think he was surprised because he had never heard of this French officer before. But I do remember that in one of the first chats we ever had, he told me that he wouldn't be surprised if his grandparents had uh, other companions because they were separated for such a long time and they were both vibrant people. So I don't think he was shocked as much by the... um, existence of an affair as by the specifics. 
Got it. Well, that makes sense. And how cool to have been connected with him. I mean, that you were able to use that in your research. That must have just been extraordinary. That has been tremendously rewarding. We've gone on a real journey together, discovering the secrets of Beatrice Chandler, and I've made a very good friend along the way. Oh, I love that. That has to be really rewarding. Well, three timelines. I always think two timelines must be hard enough to set up, but what about three timelines? How was that for you? It was tricky. I had decided from the start that I wanted to keep each voice as authentic as possible to its own time period. And so I actually wrote all three stories separately, and then I wove them together. And the trick there is I wasn't really sure whose story should go first. At first, I thought, well, Adrienne Lafayette is the natural successor to America's First Daughter and My Dear Hamilton. But ultimately, it's Marta in World War II, the young woman who saves Jewish children from the Nazis during the Holocaust by hiding them in the chateau, who is inspired by the stories of the other two women. And so that's why she ends up going first in the story as it winds around each other, as the threads weave together, because their stories are what she needs to find her own heroism. I like that. But I guess I hadn't really thought about which one you start with and that process of actually doing the interweaving. It was a debate. Not all of my critique partners agreed. So it came down to a coin toss. But in the end, I think it was the right choice. Well, I do too. And like you said, she's sort of reflecting back on the other two women in time periods of the Chateau and gaining her, I don't know, identity, strength, whatever it is to do what she's doing. And she has the farthest to go as a heroine. Adrienne and Beatrice are both very mature and heroic women almost from the start, whereas Marta is very young and very immature and very needy. And it takes her a while to become the extraordinary woman that she becomes. Did you identify more with one of them than the others? I always love whatever character I'm writing at the time best. I don't think I could identify with Adrian as much because I can't imagine being that courageous to face the guillotine, to always choose the right thing in the face of maybe even certain death. That is hard for me to imagine. I just am so impressed by her. And Marta, she's an artist, and even though I'm a writer, it's harder for me to think in those sort of terms. But Beatrice is funny, and she's also an author, so I think I identify more closely with her. That's interesting. What about writing them? Was one of them harder to write than the others? I would just say that Beatrice's story was trickier to write because I kept having to rewrite it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. You're like, I wrote it once, then I wrote it again, and then I wrote it again. (laughs) I think it's so interesting to ask authors those questions, and I find sometimes they seem to identify most with the character that was the hardest to write. Well, once you've sweat for it, then you really feel it. I think that's probably right. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from this book? I hope what they take away from this book is that the struggle for democracy never ends. It's something that repeats in every generation. Every generation of women is going to face new challenges, and we just have to pick up the torch from the women that came before us. Well, and I like that idea that the struggle for democracy is in every generation, because I think a lot of people feel that that's something we're going through right now here in the States. 
And so to remember that it's been fought and debated and all of that many times, and so that the fight just needs to continue. I agree with you. It's a fragile enterprise. The American experiment is still an experiment, and it's one that we have to reinvest in all the time. Well, what about the highlight of writing The Women of Chateau Lafayette? Well, I definitely enjoyed the research. I got to go to see the Chateau in 2017. And I think that was probably the highlight because as a history nerd, I was so excited that I was just vibrating and shaking in the Chateau. And I had to have my husband hold the camera because otherwise there would not be a single shot that anyone could see. I was so nervous and really overwhelmed and moved. I remember visiting Lafayette's treasure room which is where he kept things like um, Benjamin Franklin's signet ring and George Washington's lock of hair. And there used to be George Washington's dueling pistols there, but they went missing sometime after they were hidden to keep them out of the clutches of the Nazis. And of course, I was very moved in the Grand Philosopher's Hall, which we believe is where they had moved the girls at the Preventorium during World War II to keep the Nazis from taking the castle over. And this is described in a memoir called Saved by the Spirit of Lafayette by one of the children who was hidden in the chateau. That is so cool. And I think that's just such an amazing story. The idea that children were hidden all over France and in some of these other countries and the heroism that people went through to make sure they were protected. It's just uh, over and over again amazes me. It is both amazing what lengths people went to hide them and what lengths people went to hunt them. Really disturbing part of writing this book was to realize that they weren't just incidental victims of war, which would be bad enough, but they were intentional victims of war. They were being captured and sent to concentration camps and sent to certain death. I agree. And I think that is one of the hardest parts about reading about World War II is that it was so intentional, not just the children, but adults too, that it was so incredibly purposeful. And that level and depth of evil, I find very hard to fathom. I agree. I've written about many wars and they all have barbarous moments. They're all terrible. But World War II has that sort of special malevolent evil, Mm -hmm. that purposefulness to it that made it difficult to write. I I would be very angry at the end of each writing day. I think that makes sense because I have a hard time reading those portions of books and it sort of stays with you after you've left the book and not really in a good way. (laughs) You know, you're still thinking about it like, how could someone do that? It's just hard to fathom. I love to talk about titles and covers. I think it's totally enthralling to hear how a title comes about and then how a cover comes about. So can we talk a little bit about both of yours? Yes, I'd be happy to. We went through many, many ideas about the title from the start. It was originally called The Women of Chavignac, but I thought um, no one knows what that is. (laughs) And pronounce it. (laughs) Yes, I I thought, oh, that's going to be tricky. Uh, For a while, I thought maybe it was going to be called The Orphan's Castle, but I was pretty firm on that. I really hoped that Lafayette's name would be somewhere on the cover. He is the marquee character, and and he is a marquee. (laughs) So... I was glad that uh, the title ultimately came together that way. And I have to give credit for that to my editor, Amanda Bergeron at Berkeley. 
Well, what I like about the women of Chateau Lafayette is that you incorporate all of your timelines versus if orphans, you might not necessarily have picked up everybody. Mm -hmm. What about the cover? Because it's really different in a good way. It's very eye-catching. And the second I see it as I, you know, people are posting stacks of books or tables of books or whatever it is, it immediately stands out. Well, thank you. I had very little to do with it, (laughs) except for giving advice. One of the concerns is we had hoped to put the castle itself on the cover, but Lafayette's castle, it's sort of a humble castle to begin with, and it looks very different depending on which angle it's viewed from. In fact, viewed straight on, it looks quite humble, quite small, and viewed from the back, it looks giant with this big square tower that Beatrice Chandler added on to it. So we eventually decided that we weren't going to put the actual castle on it. And they they gave me two options. And immediately when I saw this one, I said, that's the one. And we ran with it. And I've loved it ever since. I love it too. And you know, the interesting part about thinking about putting a castle on your book right now is there are a number of books coming out and they're set in like snowy mountains but still that have castles on them and these big hunking buildings and they're all these thrillers. So it's kind of nice to have done this because it doesn't look like it's another one of these ski thrillers. I agree. And I think that the sales team thought that that might, they wanted to make sure that we gave the right impression. So it's just, I, I did not know, by the way, that I was getting gold foil letters on the hardcover. And when I saw it, it's just so beautiful with the contrast to the soft black cover. So I couldn't be more delighted with it. Do you have a favorite of your books? I mean, I know a lot of times authors will say the current book, but as you look back on everything you've written, does one stand out to you? Well, I I don't mean to be um, stereotypical, but I am going to have to say the current book just because it's been such a long labor of love. I've been dedicated to it for seven years, so I have loved it through thick and thin, and I still do. These women really touched me. They spoke to my heart. And it involves all the things that are important to me and really relevant in our current age. This isn't a story just about people in powdered wigs. Well, I don't think that's stereotypical at all. I think most of the time, the reason that the current book is the author's favorite is because that's the one they've just gotten out into the world or are in the process of getting out into the world. And you're proud of it and it's done. But I can see where for you, it would be doubly that way because you did devote so much time and effort and it's a true labor of love. Yes. What about what you're working on next? I hate to even ask that because I know you spent seven years getting this one out into the world, but are you working on anything for the future? I am. My next work will be about America's very first female cabinet secretary, Secretary of Labor Frances Perkins. So we're going to visit the Depression era for a little bit. And then I think Laura Kamoy and I are going to come back together for another founding mother. Oh, great. And I can't wait to read more about Frances Perkins. I know a little bit about her, but I really like that era and I don't know a lot about her. So that will be interesting and certainly not something that somebody's devoted their time to yet. She is a fascinating lady and I can't wait to delve into her, especially since we've just gone through such a dark year. And so to be able to write about somebody who helped pull America out of a dark time is going to be very gratifying for me. Oh, I bet so. Well, I look forward to that. Before we wrap up, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Oh, gosh. I have some spectacular reads to recommend. First and foremost, I'm going to recommend Kate Quinn's The Rose Code, which is just fantastic. 
I love all of her books, but I think this one is the best. I've read it twice. It's fun and fantastic. I also want to recommend Sue Meissner's The Nature of Fragile Things because that one really took me by surprise. I had no idea what the book was about. I just picked it up trusting that her name was on it, so I didn't even read the back. And it turned out to be sort of a mystery wrapped in a disaster. And it was really great fun. And by disaster, I mean the catastrophic earthquake in San Francisco and the fires. And another book, this is the third one I'm going to recommend, is Renee Rosen's The Social Graces, which is dishy and delicious about the feud between the Mrs. Astor and that upstart, uh, uh, Elva Vanderbilt. I have interviewed Kate and Susan, and I've actually interviewed Renee, but it won't run until April. We have similar tastes. <laughs> we do. Well, I've been getting your newsletters for years. They, you know, they're a great way to keep an eye out for what's coming out or something that might not have crossed my desk before. So, mm-hmm. But I think we do. We match up pretty well. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I really enjoyed speaking with you about the women of Chateau Lafayette. Thanks so much, and I hope we'll get a chance to chat again. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Stephanie's book can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront or at Murder By The Book, and both of the links are in my show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.